1989, I arrived in Chicago for the first time on a road to discovering my new home. 30 years later, I'm leaving Chicago for the desert. I'm Don Hall. Welcome to Peculiar Journeys. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn So get those stakes up higher There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there They're all living the devil may care And I'm just a devil with love to spare So Viva Las Vegas Viva Sheila is a 30-something black woman who frequently gambles in the afternoon at my casino She's funny, gregarious, and focused she tends to sit in front of a bank of three buffalo slot machines, put money in the two on the ends, and play those two for hours, almost daily. She complains that the machines steal her money. Duh. And that she's never gambling here again. I'll see you tomorrow, is my reply. And I do. On a typical Wednesday afternoon, I'm in my office going through my sports writer's overtime numbers and the radio goes off. Security to MOD, you're needed for a guest opportunity. Copy that on my way. As I walk into the casino through the banks of slot machines, I'm confronted by a confrontation. Sheila is hungered down in front of her buffalo slots, a beer and a shot of tequila in front of her, a cigarette burning in the ashtray. She's both playing and arguing with a white woman, 30-ish, obviously worked up and upset, standing just behind her. The security officer is just off to the side, and it's apparent he's not getting into the, this with either of them. What's up? I ask. Sheila launches into a diatribe about this racist white woman trying to take her machines. The white woman overtakes and wants to know the casino policy on playing multiple machines. It turns out, like Sheila, she only plays the buffalo slots, and given the small size of our casino, there are only a few of them. Can she play two machines like that? I know the landmines in this scene to avoid. As a matter of fact, yes. We have a number of regular players who tend to play multiple machines at once. If you'd like to wait at the bar and have a drink, I'll make sure I let you know when Sheila's finished if you'd like. Well, I was just wondering because other small casinos have a policy. A policy against black people? Sheila barks from her perch. This is not a race thing. Oh, yes, it is, Karen. Better call the manager. I look down, making sure I'm addressing both women without singling either out. By making eye contact, I put my hands up open-palmed like I'm entering a cage filled with rabid hyenas. Okay, let's all be adults right now. Sheila's playing the machines. There's no discussion or negotiation that will change that. We're going to let her play in peace and de-escalate this now. Karen walks away. Sheila starts up again about how the woman cussed her about the machines, which Karen overheard and came back jaw-flapping. Are you both in grade school enough? Seriously. And I walk Karen to the bar. I comp her a drink. She was more upset than angry and wanted me to know that she was not a racist. I told her it didn't matter if she was, that her personal baggage was not my business, and that that was completely beside the point. I told her that it seemed she was upset because she didn't get what she wanted, which is perfectly in tune with almost everyone in the species, and that she needed to let it go, have a drink, and enjoy her time in the casino. I walk over to Sheila. You doing all right? 
I'm fine. That white lady was just rude as hell. Did she say anything that made you think her approach was racist? White. She kept spinning her slots. That's it? She's white? Yeah. That's all you need. In 1974, I used to troll around my Arizona neighborhood and beat up Cub Scouts regularly. It wasn't that I hated the Scouts. I admired them. I wanted to be them. They were a group to which I couldn't belong because in order to be a Cub Scout, your mom had to be able to buy you the required uniform. No uniform, no admission to the club. They would gather together in those uniforms and laugh and do activities together. They compared merit badges and were thrilled when someone received a new one. At the time, my mother was working several jobs and had had only her own only vehicle repossessed by her ex-husband. She wouldn't allow us to refer to our tiny family of three as poor. We were broke, but never poor, she would tell my sister and I. But the sting of exclusion due solely because of our brokenness felt bad. It felt unfair, unjust. This exclusion pissed me off in ways I was unprepared to understand. So I used to walk around the neighborhood and start fights with Cub Scouts. Sometimes they were a couple together and my unbound rage would still pick the fight and I'd come home beaten but not deterred. More often than not, I'd encounter one of them blithely heading home or to school or to a Cub Scout meeting and just beat the living shit out of this blameless kid whose parents had the cash to shell out for something beyond my reach. Yeah, I was a bitter little asshole. I allowed at eight years old my station in life to determine a path of feeling that life was just so goddamned unfair that I would let my unrestrained anger at those I deemed culpable for the injustice run wild. At the time, I was told by school counselors and my beleaguered mother that it was simply unacceptable that I take out my malevolence upon kids with what I saw as rich parents. I was told and ultimately taught to channel that anger into bettering my situation, taking responsible for my station in life, and leaving the other kids alone. I was taught that those who let poverty and deprivation define them would always feel maligned by life and that there would always be people who had more than I did. Learn to make the most of what you have rather than punish those with more. Poverty was not a liability, merely an obstacle to circumvent. And that rage was like taking a hammer to a wall that couldn't be broken, only climbed over. As I grew older, I held on to these lessons, yet I still had all that anger. By the time I got seventh grade, my sense of injustice became a bit more refined. Still a blunt instrument, it still resembled a bludgeon rather than a scalpel. I found in my tendency to be a genuine smartass a group of Latino kids who decided the band nerd with the big mouth was deserving of his own beatdown. One fall day, when Victor Rodriguez, who was a small seventh grader but held great influence on a grouping of much more larger boys, was terrorizing a couple of other band kids, I crudely made fun of his size. Later that day, two of his bigger comrades beat me in the hallway and in a bizarre stereotype of a nerd versus bully scenario, stuffed me in my locker. I cried for help for 20 minutes until a teacher let me out. 
Thus began a months-long campaign between Victor and his allies to find opportunities to beat me up routinely. Every week I came home with another injury and every week my poor mother was furious. She went to the vice principal a number of times to complain, but he was already so overloaded with similar situations, mine became just one more skirmish on the pile. He often explained that Victor came from a broken home and that his mother was working several jobs. His brother was in prison and he was acting out, as if all this comprised a solid excuse for he and his buddies pummeling me. My mother never explained that well, she was divorced, also working several jobs, and that I wasn't beating up anyone anymore. I had apparently learned some sort of lesson from my days as the Cub Scout bully, and my mom was not in the habit of making excuses for me. She was raised by a man who told her even a good excuse is still just a fucking excuse. One day, Victor and his gang chased me home from school, and I ran into the house. Mom was so angry, she chased the boys away in her nightgown, brandishing a chrome vacuum extender. After, she gave me the metal tube and told me to defend myself. So I kept it in my locker. It was more a reminder that I could use it, not that I would. Then, a few weeks later, when Victor stole my science textbook and started ripping pages out of it for fun, I did use it. Victor's mother was, of course, furious and explained that he was poor and brown and didn't deserve to be hit with a pipe. His bullying wasn't his fault, she snarled. It was society's. When the vice principal furiously asked my mother what she was going to do about this, holding up a slightly bent chrome tube with a bit of blood on it, my mother defiantly replied, I'm going to get him another sweeper piece. Still years later, as a young middle school teacher, I was positioned in a school on the west side of Chicago and surrounded by kids like Victor. The overwhelming stories of fathers, uncles, and brothers in prison, of single mothers working multiple jobs, of clothes handed down for three sets of children were coupled by a split population in response. Most of the kids seemed to do their best at school and in their lives, learning what they could, engaging in the social experiment of American high school, or school in general. Others were just like me when I was terrorizing Cub Scouts, except now they were in gangs. These kids, I understood. I understood the anger and alienation. I understood the feeling of deprivation and want. I understood the desire to punish those who'd become, because who had. These kids I understood. I understood the anger and alienation. I understood the feeling of deprivation and want. I understood the desire to punish those who had because they had not, and it was all beyond their control. They all knew that beating up other kids was wrong. They knew that shooting rival gang members over territory and pride was stupid. They knew that proliferating a fantasy war with the police was a ticket to nowhere. They knew, but they didn't care. The consequences didn't matter because they had no sense of their own future. At the time, it was explained to me that these families and these gang members were victims of poverty and racism. And my answer was always, so what are they going to do about that? Dismantle the capitalist racist system. So just burn it all down in rage? Yes, it needs to be changed, they'd say. The system is broken and the only way to fix it is to destroy it and rebuild. But these kids don't have any rebuilding skills yet. All they know is how to destroy. Who's going to rebuild it once it's been burnt to the ground? Oh, I see. You're a racist. I took that particular bait 
far more often than I'm proud of because by calling me the name in question I'd asked was completely sidestepped. My own prejudices were irrelevant. What was relevant was the answer to my question, which few seem to take seriously. Who rebuilds the system once the capitalist racist patriarchy is unrigged? Today, I hear angry children sometimes in the bodies of 20 to 40 year olds screaming to punish the wealthy, dismantle the patriarchy, eradicate, eradicate systematic racism, and discard the history of the creation of, however flawed, the most progressive and prosperous country in human history out of the rage of those deprived and full of want. These kids I understand. It took adults with a built-in disdain for excuses to teach me to take responsibility for my own emotional state rather than blame it on Cub Scouts and their expensive uniforms. It took Victor's mother making excuses for her bully son to teach me that being on the Cub Scout end of things sucked because when confronted with that unhampered malice, you can't, you can't see your victim story for the fog of your own. It took 10 years of 7th and 8th grade gang members to teach me how cyclical it all seems to be and how similar we all are regardless of race or age. I understand how the deprivation and want for more, more money, more equity, more justice can warp our sense of ethics and integrity and turn us into bullies, the bullies that we despise. I also understand that if you're set to destroy something, be sure to have a few on your side who are able to rebuild something in its place and have a vision of what the new thing will be. Without those two ingredients, you're just a child beating up Cub Scouts to feel better about your circumstances. Ronnie was a big man but I didn't immediately understand why when he sat down to play the side-by-side -side dancing drums machines, we turned off the two on the other side. It turned out that Ronnie liked three things when he came into the casino. Big bets on these two machines, Sierra Mist, and no one bothering him. The big bets generally amounted to $800 spins, and Ronnie could drop as much as $30,000 in 90 minutes, even while hitting the occasional $4,000 jackpot. No one talked to Ronnie except our general manager, and he spoke to no one except to ask if he could get another Sierra Mist or if someone could watch his machines while he took a piss. The general manager told me that this guy spent so much money on the floor that if he came in and asked that everyone in the room be kicked out for three hours, everyone would be on the street while he played. One afternoon, I noticed Ronnie was out of Sierra Miss, so I grabbed him one and dropped it off without a word. You're the new guy, right? I am. He reached out and grabbed my hand with a meaty paw. He shook hard twice. Ronnie. We talked. We talked about travel and our favorite places to go. Ronnie loved Spain. I told him about Scotland. He'd never been to Edinburgh and wanted to know all about it. After a bit, I left him to play his slots and went to my office and printed out a few PDFs about traveling to Scotland. Soon, Ron and I spoke at length every time he came in. As the manager on duty, I found myself making sure he was comfortable and that no one bothered him. At one instance, a guy came over and hovered, watching him make those big bets. The guy wanted to talk, and Ronnie was accommodating, but I knew. I went over, got the guy's attention, and said, Hey, let me buy you a drink over at the bar. I walked him to the bar and quietly let him know that Ronnie preferred to be left alone. The guy was a little put off, but enjoyed his drink and then went and hovered over another player. 
Ronnie was effusive later at how smoothly I pulled this cat away and made a point to grab my GM to tell him I was the real deal, an old-school casino boss with what he called a firm finesse. I found out over time that Ronnie worked for Chevron and was loaded in the way that I could barely conceive. Turned out the rest of the casino chain I worked for was clamoring to get this guy's business, offering him thousands of dollars in free slot play, amenities, free hotel rooms, He'd swing by those properties, but he always came back and did his most aggressive play at our hole-in-the-wall casino because we treated him right. He told one of the GMs at one of the big properties that they didn't have Don Hall, so he wasn't staying. The one thing about Ronnie that mystified me was that when he won a jackpot, he never tipped the Title 31 attendants, who also dual-rated his cocktail waitresses, when they processed his winnings. A customary practice one would expect a neophyte to be unaware of, but certainly not a seasoned player. This guy was completely flush with cash, but he had this incredibly stingy blind spot. There's a growing trend in looking at tips for services unnecessary and in some cases harmful to businesses. This is a quote from an article. There is a strong initial consensus among participants, both managers and servers, that tipping ensures good service. This appears to be aspirational. When pressed, respondents perceived that there be little correlation between the service experience and the size of the tip. As a part of their research, McAdams and Von Massow found that tipping actually creates vast inequities in the restaurant business between servers who work front of house and directly receive a 15 to 20% tip from restaurant patrons and the cooks and dishwashers in the kitchen. Quote, we discovered that the proportion of tips shared with the front of house staff was greater than that of the back of house staff. In fact, they also found that there were restaurants in which a bigger proportion was shared with the back of house staff, but they were the exception. Nonetheless, tipping is a part of the culture. And when someone wins $1,200 on a slot machine, it's just considered good manners to throw the attendant $20 or $40 for good measure. I understand the arguments against tipping, and I also find that servers and attendants who routinely judge their patrons based on tipping practices creates an ugly expectation, but I'm likewise a big tipping proponent. And I'm told that slot attendants on the big properties can bring in $100,000 a year in a $12 an hour gig just from tips on jackpots. Also customary is that managers do not accept tips. In fact, more than custom, it's a legal barrier per, ne- per Nevada gaming law. This certainly doesn't stop managers from pocketing them, but I take it seriously. The first time I was offered a tip for the jackpot assist, it requires a managerial witness and override to pay one out, I refused. The attendant then pulled me aside and suggested that I accept the tip and then hand it over to her. This way I don't insult the player by refusing his largesse and the actual workers can split the tip later. My GM approaches me one afternoon. Ronnie wants to talk to you. He's going to palm you a $100 bill as a tip. I know you know that you can't accept it, but then he looks me in the eye. I don't know about it, so you do with it what you like. Sure enough, Ronnie shakes my hand with that slab of a hand, and it is a C-note. I accept it, thank him graciously. Then I walk over to the Title 31 attendant who processes most of his winnings and hand it to her. Ronnie doesn't tip you, but for some reason he tipped me. This is yours. Tips should go to the folks who work for a living. I can't say I know Ronnie well enough to ask him why he finds himself so cheap when it comes to tipping. Given that the relationship is convivial but transactional, I may never find out that moment. But as long as he feels comfortable tipping me, the tips will always flow in the correct direction. (laughs) 
gonna keep on the run I'm gonna have me some fun If it cost me my very last dime If I wind up broke, well, I'll always remember Peculiar Journeys is a storytelling podcast. For previous seasons, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or online at donhall.vegas slash podcast. To support Peculiar Journeys, please review the show on Apple Podcasts, share it with your friends or on social media, or go to patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys and become a VIP patron by tossing me a few bucks. Thanks for listening. Let's make it.